Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. The laughter, the screaming, the never-ending joy, the rustling of Switzer bags and the whirring of the lashes confectionery, the boos and the hisses, the farty pumps. Joyous, there's no doubt, but what happens when the curtain is drawn and it all falls silence? Where does the dame go then? No business like show business. No business like a pantomime business, more like. Not my words, the words of my friend and confidant Christopher Biggins. I was most moved by his musings on pantomimes, and less so on some of the other stuff he said about bisexuals being a deadly mixture of greedy heterosexuals and closeted homosexuals. But you take the rough with the smooth with Biggie. He's so right, though, isn't he? Oh, so right, though. Pantomimes are a fantastic genre in the theatre, but what does happen when the cuts and falls? What's behind you isn't a giant monkey or a nasty ghost, as the show so often promises, but in fact a serious case of chronic depression and existential crises. You rarely hear that during the show, but according to Biggins, it's part and parcel of the whole business. In his words, every time I do one, I feel I'm a ticking time bomb waiting to go off, and I'll take half the kids with me, Holworth, I swear to God. And do you know, reader, I think he meant it. Pantomimes, or pantomimes, as in blowing off explosions. <coughs> Good day. My name is Sir Holworth Felix to Smooth, and whilst it's true I have most recently become a grand master in the tutoring of the Kama Sutra, and fucking good I am at it too, I am also the host of this show currently coming in your ears. Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. I must start this week with a little moan, I'm afraid. Oh, I know, forgive me, forgive me. Uh, like my colonoscopist always says, I shall try to be quick, but this really must be seen to. Well... I popped myself down to my local shopkeep last Thursday uh, just to get myself a few bits uh, as item one, a loaf of bread, uh, brown, wheaty, a pound of bourbon biscuits, some dettol, a tube of stripy Colgate, three ounces of sugar, three half pounds of butter, a little cheese and a vat of pork. Um, I do love my pork for a Sunday roast, you see. Uh, anyway, there I am. I'm, I'm packing my bits, and uh, I thank the shopkeep, Jasminda, who is a girl of about 16, and uh, congratulate her on, on what is and continues to be a thoroughly good shopping experience. I mean, all the items, uh, you, you, you couldn't imagine it, are arranged on a shelf. And you'll lend a basket as you enter, and you're welcome to come and go as you please. It's, it's a tremendously efficient uh, operation. I can't really fault it, is, is what I'm saying. Um, though I wouldn't perhaps stock the tampons so near the jammy dodgers. Uh, it's just something about it that doesn't quite uh, sit well with me. Anyway, uh, there I am. I'm, I'm thanking Jasminda. I'm kissing her on the hand. I'm, I'm bowing with reverence, as you do. And uh, I also uh, am asking others in the queue to, to show their appreciation in the same way, uh, which they, they do one after t'other, like a sort of uh, retail Mexican wave. 
And uh, on completion, it's a short hey, and uh, I step out of the shop, promising whimsically that uh, next time I shall remember to bring my castanet. Hey! Well, to my surprise, um, a small man is stood there with a small flip book and uh, a well-bitten biro. And I, I try to uh, pass the smelly man. Uh, so I, I should have mentioned that he, he smelt a bit. Um, like a cross between a doggy poo-poo and vomit. Um, which I was somewhat glad of many ways, because uh, judging by the stains on his slacks, if he hadn't have smelt so strongly of that, there would no doubt have been a whiff of stale piss. And uh, given half the chance, I prefer the former to the latter. Now, as I say, I, I tried to shuffle past the man who called out to me by name and rank and grabbed me with alarming veracity on what can only be described as my arm, uh, because it was. Uh, and he pushed his little notebook towards me and asked me for an autograph. Now, of course, I have long been requested of my signature by the lonely and the bewildered, but this man was quite shameful to look at. And to hear him tell me he was my biggest fan was not only shocking, it made my stomach turn. In fact, I feel a little bit uh, woozy. No, I won't. I won't go. I won't go. No, I won't go. I'm just... That's fine. I won't go. Um, I, I had Angel tonight for breakfast, um, which I don't mind telling you is threatening to bubble back up to meet me. Um, anyway, uh, back to the... No, I won't go. I won't go. Um, I told him in no uncertain terms that I wouldn't be signing any autographs, um, not expecting him to rebuke me. Uh, but he did, and he asked why, uh, to which I panicked and told him I needed to get back quickly to put my bourbon creams in the freezer, otherwise they'd melt. As I say, I, I panicked. He then looked confused. I panicked even more and said I also had somebody tied up in my house, and if I didn't get back, they'd perish. Well, the man looked frightened, and to be quite honest, so was I. I mean... I'd been top of the class at Clive Anderson's evening classes in improv and stage idiocy, and I'd proved me mustard on several episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway in the early 90s. Most notably, Series 3, Episode 7, when I guested with Tandy Toxvik, and we did a hilarious bit about a man who mistook her for a cobbler. Uh, <laughs> oh, you had to be there, but uh, honestly, it was, it was some of the best improv I've ever seen heard, done, or seen. Uh, even Clive said it was hilarious, and he actually hates improv. Uh, and Sandy Toxvig. So, uh, that, 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 there you go. Uh, anyway, back to the mattress at hand. Uh, with a deep breath through my nose, I shuffled past the hobgoblin, and I started up the road. And uh, as I got to the corner, I looked back to find that he had vanished. Had I dreamt the horrid man all along? Was he a mirage of my worst nightmares? Was it really a fantasy? No. I told myself certainly not. Nobody could dream up that kind of halitosis. I turned to continue up the road and butter my jacksy thrice. There he was again, shunting his notepad and pen into my stomach, repeating over and over that he was my biggest fan and please could I sign a page for him. Relenting and fearing somebody would see me, I asked his name and asked what message he would like. Delighted with my turn, he told me to put Napoleon and asked if I would write, I love you, stay with me forever. Realising this was not just a scruffian but also a madman, I wondered if he had followed me to the shop in the first place. Nightmares tumbled around my mind about what I should do. Could I really sign this? What if the Daily Mail got hold of it? What if my partner got hold of it? 
But I really have to explain that I wasn't having an affair with a 300-year-old dead sailor. No. I knew I had no choice, and in one swift and painless move, it must be said, I knocked the man out with a dettle bottle and hoyed him into a nearby rosebush. Admittedly, there was a softer hedge next to it, but by this time he really had annoyed me quite a lot, and I was a little upset with uh, how painless my quick blow had been, and felt a few thorns in and around his back passage might, you know, even up the playing field. I tore the piece of paper to shreds, pushed his feet that were sticking out, and, and made my way home. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, look, I, I don't want to moan about fans, but there has to be a basic level of hygiene, guys. Approach me, please, I beg you, but only if you are confident. You've brushed your teeth thrice daily, have popped a comb through that hair of yours, and haven't pissed yourself to the point of exhaustion. In general, I like me fans like my toilet, clean, approachable, and for the most part, white. And on that note, let's chat a little bit about pantomime, shall we? As we say... On with the show! Pantomimes, or Four Doors and Trousers Down, as it's referred to at the Birmingham Rep, are the cornerstone of the British Theatre and are the go-to events of the Christmas season. Apart from being the main source of income for celebrities D through Z, pantomimes are, are also a welcome two hours for any parent who needs desperately for time apart from their own children. Um, of course, the parent must accompany the child, but uh, pantomimes are so simple and one-dimensional and stupid that the parent is really allowed to totally switch off whilst the child whoops and hollers and generally makes the actor's lives a, a living nightmare. The whole thing is a theatrical melee of shouting, running, screaming, gender reassignments, furry costumes, smutty double entendre and jokes about dick. The last one is mostly specific to Dick Whittington, it must be said, though I did once see a Snow White that had a lot of little dicks in it. Seven, to be precise. For those who have never been to a pantomime, perhaps because they're poor or they're American and simply cannot grasp the concepts, it might be best to explain the sorts of things that make the genre stand out from others. Um, firstly, it's probably worth it to say from the outset that there is no fourth wall in the pantomime. Uh, in fact, when I did Cinderella at the Grand Theatre in Belfast, there was no second wall either, to be precise, because the village idiot had backed his JCB into the back of the theatre, leaving only each wing standing, uh, walls one and three. Uh, but that's the Irish for you, and I'm happy to say, not typical. It could be quite comical when a potent gust rolled down from the Irish mountains, it, it has to be said, though. I mean, it created the most dramatic of wind tunnels, and uh, the majority of the audience spent the entirety of the show with their hair waving about like uh, in the final battle of Braveheart. <laughs> but Irish. Um, anyway, we digress. So, aside from the missing back wall, the typical fourth wall is an imaginary wall which separates the audience from the stage. Um, in a piece of naturalism, it is said that wall exists, and especially Ponzi actors will act as if the audience aren't there at all. Um, not only does this create a sense of realism, but also the audience are made to feel as, as voyeurs, ogling the action like a prize-winning pervert. Uh, but in pantomimes, it is as if 
oh, I don't know how best to put it. Um, well, it's as if a JCB has, has backed into the invisible wall and uh, is has knocked it down. So uh, now the characters are, are well aware of the audience and the audience are encouraged to be a part of the action. To holler and jab, and as I've said previously, really be quite disruptive to the whole business um, in a sort of uh, unionising way. For those people that don't consider it a dereliction of the company to allow such practices to go ahead and to sue them, the call and response is really a rite of passage and a huge part of the pantomimic scene. Um, it was Ron Reagan who really spearheaded the pulling down of the fourth wall, by the way, after getting a penchant for wall felling after taking down the nasty German one. But uh, it was also his fierce use of rhetoric that began that call and response. Um, you might have seen it in pantomimes. A, a character will ask a question of the audience and they will reply as one with a familiar response. Common call and responses are, uh, where is it? It's behind you. Or, um, oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it isn't. Uh, and as we used in Ireland, who was driving that JCB? That man, officer. You get the idea. Unfortunately, over the years, many have been lost. Uh, I was always a great fan of when the audience used to ask where the dame hid her sausage, and the dame would respond by pulling out his penis and waving it about, shouting, Oi, oi, Saladoy! <laughs> uh, perhaps that was just Gary Wilmot. Um, oh, traditions. You're listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about theatre. Next up, we'll be going through a few more pantomimic traditions, as well as championing some of those most precious of roles in the pantomime. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. You've given me my carrots and my peas without any gravy. Sorry, son. It's just coming now. I'm just waiting for the kettle to boil to make you some of the delicious gravy. Ah, gravy from the north. Ah, 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 gravy from the north. Nobody makes brown, thick gravy better than the north. Ah, gravy from the north. Keep going, Mum. Don't stop. I want floating in me gravy. Hey, who's eating all the gravy? That would be your son. Are you going to have any tatties with that gravy? <laughs> <laughs> buy gravy from the north. You can get it in the south. But buy gravy from the north. Ah, gravy from the north. Ah. Gravy from the North sponsors Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. It was Julian Clary who went out of his way to return my calls most recently. When researching this subject, we find ourselves so deeply immersed in uh, Julian, who is widely regarded as the queen of pantomime, regards it as one of the highest art forms and is a constant on the stage every year. According to Julian, pantomimes are essentially an evening of smut, sex, sauciness and seduction, and nearly every line in the pantomime is designed as an innuendo and must be delivered so. 
Uh, in fact, Julian is so adept at it that uh, I found myself discovering sexual double entendre in every inch of our large and throbbing conversation. Uh, when I told him the call might be lengthy, he made a mmm sound. When I said I wanted to go as deep as necessary, another mmm. When I insisted I wasn't trying to make an innuendo, he simply screamed, In your endo! And uh, the conversation continued in, in much the same way. Eventually, though, I did manage to penetrate through it. Oh, for fuck's sake. And we spoke of how to deliver panto scripts. Clary insists that he approaches any pantomime as if it were a Shakespeare play. In his words, nobody knows what the fuck is going on, just overpronounce everything, and if there hasn't been a laugh for two minutes, then flash the audience your soliloquy and exit the stage left. Pursued by a bear. Preferably a big hairy one covered in leather. Mmm! He was making a few more smutty jokes. I did wonder if there was any truth in his insertion that pantomime really was a serious art form. And on his advice, I made entry into his realm, attending the last week of rehearsals for a provincial pantomime in Portsmouth called Pussy in Your Boots, where I hoped to learn the ins and outs of what makes these shows dick tick. And what's an eye-opener it was... I hoped he might organise for me to attend the Palladium rehearsals, surely the pantomime season's hottest ticket, and Clary's stomping ground, but he insisted that it wouldn't be fruitful as they don't so much rehearse there as lock all the doors for two weeks, decide on ten jokes they can fist into every scene over the first hour, take luncheon, and then spend the rest of the time having a porgy. Stage slang for a panto orgy. I inquired to hear more, but in Clary's words, mind your own business, Holworth, you pervert. If you really want to know, ask Edwina Curry. And with that, he slams the phone down, and I packed for Portsmouth. When I first walked into Pussy and Boots rehearsals, the first thing that hit me uh, was a wayward dancer's sickled foot. They were rehearsing the Act 1 finale, which was the Meal Deal Ballet. Uh, oh, I, I should have mentioned that the word boots in the title was a pun, deputising as both a description of the hero's shoes as well as the title of the setting, which was the popular chain of chemists. Anyway, twelfth uh, during the ballet that the fresh-faced recent grad from Lane Theatre Arts had overjetted and found himself falling into a kung-fu-style pirouette which was uh, deflected with a handbag swipe from the dame and sent on a one-way trajectory to my face uh, just as I entered the room and shouted, Surprise! Wallop! People's jaws hit the floor, not just because what I had sustained was a serious case of concussion, but also because Clary, ever the practical joker, hadn't actually organised anything at all, and my arrival was tantamount to theatre terrorism. The trade secrets of the theatre are precious enough, but in pantomime it's sacrilegious to walk into a rehearsal room without having gained first permission. Debbie McGee, the wife of the late Paul Daniels, was in the directing chair, and once she had finished giving me the breath of life to bring me round, she always did fancy me, the cheeky little bitch, she checked I was compass mentis, and then slapped me again for crashing her rehearsals just as her three-hour ballet was near completion. I, being a stalwart for the theatre, of course, replied with the customary six of the best. There has long been a tradition of thwacking or theatre-whacking in pantomime. McGee was wronged by my intrusion, so she answered with a swift belt. My acknowledgement and acceptance of, and apology, is given with a robust reply of four more slaps. Debbie took them, and we smiled, and rubbing her face, called lunch. 
I had told Debbie early on that I was there because Julian Clary had told me that this was the place to learn more about pantomimes and that I would do what it took to find out that golden secret but also that I would only be staying for an hour as I needed to catch the train back because being outside of London makes me scared and, and brings out my hives. Skin, not be. She nodded and smiled in a way that was reminiscent of understanding, but suggested delirium. Uh, as an ex-magician's assistant, Debbie has the painted smile well rehearsed, but as age has ravaged her, as it does us all, the skin falls away from the face a little more, and whilst it is a smile, it's the sort of smile you might expect from a person who has seen war and is constantly reminded of it, haunted by a past life. I told her this, of course, and was met with another smile where she was attempting to improve. I lied and suggested there had been an improvement, when in fact there hadn't. If anything, I could see the blood and the guns and the screams even more clearly than before. The droopy cheeks drooped further, but now the capillaries in her eyes were bulging from the strain. I dropped it, and we chatted about what really makes a panto tick, and what the couple there had left to cover. Debbie told me that while she thinks Pussy in Boots is going to be the crowning achievement of the December 2021 season, she does think that pantomimes have lost their way by having such a long rehearsal period in eight months. According to her, it isn't uncommon for actors to become overworked and lose their mojo. And of course, there are accidents. With all the tumbling and the pies in faces, there is a constant threat of injury. Only last week, says Debbie, we had a beautiful boy from the Royal Ballet who was playing a page boy and he did the most wonderful arabesque but landed funny and broke his leg, which of course meant we had to do the right thing. Uh, when I inquired to Debbie as to, to what she meant by that, she went on, well, we erected a tent around him and once the break was confirmed, we put a bullet through his fucking head. It's the kindest thing to do, Holworth. Don't look at me like that. When I politely told Debbie that what she was describing was for racehorses and not humans, and that a broken leg is considered minor surgery in many cases in the West, she went quite ashen and dropped her cigarette and her brandy and coke. She really was a shell of her former self. I challenged her. Isn't it the truth that pantomimes are overblown affairs, weird and wonderful pieces of escapism that really bear no relation to the real world? but do offer us a one-dimensional trip to the wholesome, the simple, and the relatively peaceful. A joy-filled journey of laughter, interaction, and compadre with our fellow man that's needed more and more in the ever-changing cosmopolitan and dog-eat-dog -dog world of today. But by this time, she'd gone from ashen to green and was spewing up in the waste paper bin, mewling to herself, Oh, little Johnny, oh, little Johnny, what have I done? which was as good an affirmation as I was going to get. I tried to comfort her and assure her that wherever Johnny was now, he was in a better place, to which she replied, and the others? And with that, I made my excuses and left, having seen no rehearsals, no castrum, no singing, no scripts, no acting, no backstage buggery, nothing, except a petite woman throw her guts up, which, don't get me wrong, is quite funny in itself. But at the same time, it bred nothing in the like of knowledge of the genre itself. But there we go. Debbie McGee always was a mysterious, mysterious lady of the night. Um, I use that phrase uh, in a pithy way. She is not, to my knowledge, and has never been a prostitute.
Oh, pantomime, you cruel bitch. Oh, yes, you are. No! Oh, yes, you are. No! Oh, yes, you are, you cruel bitch. No! On such a correspondence, this week, Lily Cumberland, 50, from Sunderland, WhatsApps us with a very curious question indeed. Hello, Lily. She writes, Dear Homeworth, love the show. Keep us up. You're a great man. Seriously, you have such a good voice. Have you ever thought of doing acting? Not uh, the most attentive uh, of listeners, it, it appears. I shall press on. Uh, can you clear something up for me? My husband says that pantomimes are for children and that I should stop going to them. He even thinks that to set foot in a theatre when there is a pantomime in residence is an act of immeasurable immaturity. He says it is especially strange because I don't have any children. It's certainly true that I am somewhat in love with the genre. Last year I spent £15,000 on tickets alone and saw over 350 different pantomimes in a four-month season alone. I won't sit in anything other than a VIP seat and always make a point of buying myself a bag of sweets and lighty wand that makes a whirring noise when I wear it. Do you think I have an unhealthy addiction, as my husband says, or should I continue with annual remortgages to pay for my admittedly overtly fun pastime? Also, do you think it's weird to pretend you have children when you go to a pantomime and to sit chatting with parents in the interval, pretending those children are in the toilet? That last question isn't for me, I assure you, it's for my friend. Also, if that is weird, is it weird to read bedtime stories to them in the airing cupboard when your husband is asleep, or in the bath, or with his mistress? Again, for a friend. Best wishes, Lily. P.S. Did I mention that husband is more of a metaphorical Sam? I don't have a husband. Is that weird? Oh, Lily, 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 oh, you Sunderlinian nuts, guys, you. Oh, I sort of want to strangle you, but um, I, I want to start by, by thanking you, actually, for, for the large tin of roses that you've sent alongside your WhatsApp messages. We were a little perturbed by the fact you'd eaten all the chocolates out of it and, and then filled it with horse manure, but having now read your WhatsApp message, I'm getting a little more of an idea of why that might have been the case. Now, to your central question. Should you be allowed to pantomimes as much as you do, especially with children who don't exist when it upsets your non-existent husband so much. Have I got that right? Yes, I think I have. Well, look, I, I think the charge that uh, £15,000 uh, is a lot for theatre trips is certainly a nonsense. Um, I don't really fuss with our money. Sean does all that uh, business. But I think £15,000 sounds quite cheap. Uh, Sean often has to spend what would seem large amounts of money just to get our shopping done. Uh, we needed eggs the other day, and Sean insisted on going to get them, and uh, that I didn't need to go with him. And when he returned, he uh, informed me they were now £5 an egg. Uh, £5 <laughs> does, uh, does uh, seem a lot. Bread, he said, was £50 a loaf. Uh, and when he got the bus, the fare was £500. Um, what can I say? It's inflation uh, through the roof. Um I support us both, uh, and I'm able to because of the small fortune I've made over my career. 
Uh, also, my uncle was the fourth Duke of Hidderminster and had no heirs, so I uh, in, inherited £100 million pounds, um, of a fortune. Anyway, uh, I, I, I digress. I, I think £15,000 is, uh, is fine for a ticket, actually. Sounds quite cheap. Um, last time, Sean took me to Les Miserables. He paid £25,000 a ticket. Um, I had to give him my gold card to, to book them. And he had to, to take a flight all the way to Menorca to book them. Um, the money had to be to be wired through. I mean, the mind boggles. You know, you, you mustn't get too wrapped up with uh, economics, uh, uh, young Lily. Uh, at the end of the day, you should just trust your partner, your non-existent partner, wholeheartedly. Um, and and uh, I, I would I would go hell for leather and uh, and pay as much as thirty thousand pounds for a ticket. You want to get a good view at the end of the day. Now to these imaginary children, um, I should say if they make a little noise, uh, don't knock things over, and are able to hold their toilet, then fill your boots. Um, if, however, you get to the stage where you're telling the ushers the turd they've found was left by your five-year-old who was already left with his father as an excuse for the fact it's it's actually you who's done a little poo and then sort of shook it out on the down down the right leg uh, through your, your britches, um, you know, perhaps pulling your knickers to the side just to, to give it enough of a crack to get through. That's the crack of the knickers and the, not your... You, you'll get my meaning. Um, if, if you get to that stage uh, and you're doing that sort of stuff, you know, while everybody else is up on their feet clapping along in the finale, then it's time to abort the bands, as, uh, as the Sunderlinians would say. Um, and finally, to your imaginary husband, um, if he's already henpecking you, then I say get rid. Now, being that you're clearly suffering from some sort of delusion, or as we might say in the old days, are, are a bit of a mental, the, the normal advice of just dropping the ruse won't work. Now, just as you married him, in your mind you must now divorce him. Uh, if he refuses, then go to an imaginary solicitor and file papers with the imaginary court, and take him to the cleaners. Uh, they need not be imaginary, because that in itself was a metaphor, so... Uh, the two things uh, need not cross over there. If you still have trouble, you could always drive your car into the canal whilst wearing a rubber ring so that when you're saved, it's clear it's a cry for help and not a serious attempt. And uh, perhaps I should also clarify that that blast part was indeed not imaginary or not a metaphor. I really do mean uh, to, to take the mini-metro uh, into the local water body. Hopefully, you'll then get some counselling. Um, counselling, indeed. I mean, in my day, women would be given heroin a zap of the old vibrator. Um, alas, times change, Lily, and uh, unfortunately, you can't look forward to that. More likely, it will be a padded cell. I do hope that helps, uh, Lily Cumberland. Fifty from Sunderland. To you, I say, God's day. that's all we have time for today. Join me next time when we'll be shitting our pants as we discuss the most theatrical genres. Horror. Yes, it's all head spinning, blood sucking and vomiting and that's just Sean reading through all the correspondence trying to find somebody who isn't so many sultanas short of a fruitcake. You've been listening to Talking Theatre. Oh, before I go, I decided I would end this podcast not just with my normal sign-off, but with a little bit of a song. Old pantomimes end with a good finale song, and so I thought I would do one too. So hang on till after my sign-off if you want to hear a bit of a tune. <laughs> so as I say, 
You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so until next time, to you I say, good day. Hit it. A certain news about to be loved by anyone. It's not the news you want to have fun with anyone. But if you ever want to be loved by anyone, it's not the news you want to see me cry. Ooh, I want that. It's not the news you want to go out at any time. Bumpty bump. But when I see you out and about, it's a bloody crime. Da 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 da. And if you ever want to be loved, then it's not unusual. It happens every bloody day, no matter what you say, you little cheeky liar. You'll find it happens all the time. That's a lovable and do. And that is anybody wants to do. I can't disgrace your love, be mine, be mine, be mine. Da 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 da. It's that time you attend to mental bit. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone on the job bit. And if you ever want to be loved by anyone It's not unusual to find out I'm in love with you It's not unusual pantomimes That's all right, is it? I'm not doing this again. <laughs>